Oh, yes. I thought you said St. Patrick. I'm like, that's random. It's not March yet. St. Patrick's a good guy, though. A good Trinitarian man. Yeah, I can't wait to meet him in heaven. Okay. Well, good morning. My name is Rob, one of the pastors here. And I want you to imagine for a moment something. Um... Let's pretend that you are having, and this is a pretty common scenario, let's pretend for a moment that you're having coffee or tea with a friend, uh, probably a flat white if you're here in Australia, all right? Um, Some people are shaking their heads no, no on the flat white, that's okay. But let's pretend there you are, you're having coffee or tea with this friend of yours who, this friend is is a new Christian. They don't go to this church, but they go to a a good, solid, you know, Bible-believing church. And as you're meeting with this friend, they seem and they appear really distressed. And eventually you're watching them and you can tell just by the way they're acting. You've known this friend for several years and and so you ask her, "Are, are you okay? You, don't, you seem out of sorts. You don't, you don't seem yourself. You seem quite distressed. To which they reply, their voice begins to crack. There's part frustration, part defeat. You can just sense all the emotions coming out of them and they just say, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm so discouraged. I, I, I'm, I, I just want to give up. To which, if you're a good friend, you don't say, oh yeah, anyway... How's the, you know, it's a lovely day, isn't it, you know? <laughs> to which, if you're a good friend, you say, do what, right? Well, what, are you, what are you talking about? Well, do what? And they reply, I, I, I just, I read the Bible, you know? As you know, I'm a new Christian, and I, 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 I see all these commandments. There's, there's all of these commandments, and, and I, I, I can't keep them. I can't keep any of them. Maybe some of them, but, but most of them I can't keep. I, I feel so defeated. I feel so frustrated. I, I just feel like I, I want to throw in the towel. Uh, how are you going to respond to this friend? Careful. Careful how you respond. Jesus didn't say that he came to chuck out the law and the prophets, did he? And notice as Reynard said, right? Those who do those things, who, those who sort of come to the law flippantly are called what? Least in the kingdom of heaven, right? So you don't want to be one of those people, do you? So how are we going to respond to our distressed friend? You know, what's interesting about this passage that Reynard just read for us is at first glance, it seems like Jesus is saying this, hey, Men and women, boys and girls, don't worry about the law and the prophets. Don't stress out about it. No dramas, as you'd say in Australia. Why? Because I take care of that. I fulfill it. But then, in the next breath, in the very next breath, he says, actually observing the law is critical. Every jot and tittle of it. 
It's vital. And you know what? Unless your righteousness far surpasses the scribes and Pharisees, you can just forget about going to heaven. Did you feel a bit of a tension there? Yes. And if you aren't already feeling a bit of tension, what's interesting is when we look at the words of Jesus here and we keep reading past the Gospel of Matthew, right? Mark and Luke and John. And then we get into the book of Romans, right? Yes, we love the book of Romans. It's awesome because Paul says things like this in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 7, which seems to be almost going against what Jesus just said here in Matthew. Likewise, my brothers, you also have, what does it say? Died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now, now we are what? released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Okay, now that seems pretty appropriate to give to the distressed friend. But hold on. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Come back to Matthew. Jesus said that not the least stroke of a pen will be withdrawn from the law. Not until heaven and earth pass away. Has that happened yet? No? no? Okay, well. And then Jesus says, whoever, now think about your friend here, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Did you hear that? Whoever does the law and the prophets and teaches the law and the prophets will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, at this point, it seems like, well, maybe your friend actually has some legitimate concern. So what is going on here? How does Jesus view the law or the Old Testament? The law and the prophets means the Hebrew scriptures. That's just another way of saying the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. So what is Jesus' posture then towards the Old Testament? And if you're a Christian here this morning, what should your posture be? What should your attitude towards the Old Testament be? Those are the questions of which I'd like to hang our text on that we just read. I have two points. The first is in verse 17 through 18. I want to talk about Christ's attitude towards the law. Second, in verse 19 through 20, I want to think about a Christian's attitude towards the law or the Old Testament. So boiling it down, you could say this. Make it simple for you. Christ and the law, Christians and the law. Or Christ in the Old Testament, Christians in the Old Testament. And honestly, friends, what we believe about these few verses right 
here will dramatically affect how we understand and interpret the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. This text in 5.17-20 is critical and has massive ripple effects for how we read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Did you catch what I'm saying? This is critical. This is not just... Because I don't know about you, but often when I read the Bible, and I'm trying, especially as we're going through the Bible now, and we've got a couple chapters to read each day or a chapter to each day, in the past, when I come across something confusing where Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. I go, whoa. Anyway, what does the next part say? And if you're mad at your brother, oh yeah, I can relate to that one. Yeah, yeah, I was mad at my brother yesterday. You know, the, Yeah, yeah, anyway, whatever about that Pharisee and righteous stuff, I don't know. That's, whew, it's too much for me. I'm a simple guy, right? Think about this stuff. But how we read this passage is going to color, it's going to, it's, it's like when you drop food dye in or, or something into a um, water, right? And it sort of just colors all of it or your tea bag or however you, illustration you want to use, right? It's going to color how we're going to view and read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So it's, it's critically important for us to understand how to read this. And that's my prayer for you guys is that I can give you glasses, as it were, to read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount by expounding this text here. But we need prayer to do that. So let's go to the Lord now and pray. Father, what we, know, what we are not, make us. What we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. For your glory, in Jesus' sake we ask. Amen. How many of you have heard this expression before? Well, I like the God of the New Testament. Happy, accepting, the guy that he's mad at the religious types. I like that guy. It's the God of the Old Testament I have problems with. Right? The God of the New Testament is the, is the lovey Jesus guy. You know, the God of the Old Testament is, is cranky. He's crotchety. He smites people down. Plagues, <sighs> blood. I like the God of the New Testament. I don't like the God of the Old Testament. How many of you have heard people talk like that before? Yeah, you, you, you can talk to people in secular society and if they have some kind of idea about the Bible, they're gonna talk that way. But in this text before us in Matthew, you've got Jesus saying that he accepts everything in the Old Testament. I mean, basically, he says this. Look, if you want a Messiah who's going to play fast and loose with Scripture, you've got the wrong dude. Because I have not come to abolish anything in the Bible. None of it. I've not come to abolish, throw down, destroy. It's like a building. You just picture like a demolishing of a building. I haven't come to do any of those things. But I have come to what? To fulfill right? Jesus understands the Old Testament as completely authoritative, perfect, and enduring, but that's not all. Wait for it. He sees his life as a fulfillment of it. Did you catch that? Jesus sees the Old Testament 
the law, the prophets, the writings. He sees all of those books as completely authoritative, as enduring, as imperfect, as inerrant, but, drum roll please, he sees his life, ta-da, as a fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Now, when we see that word fulfilled, it's not the first time we've seen it in Matthew, is it? This tends to be sort of Matthew's buzzword, his hashtag, right? This was to fulfill what the prophet so-and-so said. This was to fulfill what the prophet so-and-so said. Glance with me for just a moment at chapter 1. I want you to see the very first instance this word fulfill in Matthew is used. Fulfill. Because this word fulfill is, is pregnant with meaning. Pun intended, and you'll see why I, I just said that. Chapter 121. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Here we go. You ready for fulfill? Here it comes. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And here comes a quote from Isaiah 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So it's clear that Matthew is setting a tone here for what follows. But I want you to look at chapter 2, verse 6. Don't, 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 don't lose me. Chapter 2, verse 6. He's going to shift a little bit his practice of quoting the Old Testament. He's, he's going he's gonna to shift a little bit. Do you understand what I mean? He's, it, it's not going to be like a tit for tat. It's not going to be a one for one. In chapter 2, verse 6, talking about the birthplace of Jesus. He's, he's, he's drawing back in from Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. You see that there? Chapter 2, verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler. Okay, so there we go. But then he adds this line, who will shepherd my people Israel. Who will shepherd my people Israel. That's not in Micah 5, 2. That's not in Micah 5.2. That comes from 2 Samuel, where the Lord, there's a, uh, there's a narrative there where, where God had consolidated power for King David. So what Matthew does is he sews together, he stitches together two different verses. That's a bit audacious, right? Sort of breaking the rules. Now, things get even more complicated. Because when we're, again, think about fulfillment here. Matthew begins pointing to certain events in Jesus' life and patterns and movements and arguing that they all intersect in Jesus, that all the prophetic lines of Scripture intersect in Jesus. And sometimes, sometimes he names the prophet like Jeremiah or like Isaiah, right? The prophet so-and-so said X, Y, and Z, Right? And sometimes he doesn't even bother. And he gives this generic phrase, the prophets said he'll be a Nazarene. The prophets said this. This is how I used to picture what's called messianic, think Messiah, messianic prophecy. Verses in the Old Testament that predicted Jesus. I used to picture it this way. Picture American gridiron, which I could care less for, by the way. 
I'd rather watch NRL any day. Just saying. They don't wear pads. Or the AFL, whatever, right? So, so just picture it this way. This is how I pictured it, though. You're familiar enough with gridiron, right? You throw these long footballs and these... Anyway, they catch it and then whistles blow. And I don't get how it all works, but whatever. But this is how I used to picture it. I'm Jeremiah or I'm Isaiah here, okay? And I say this. I'm Jeremiah now, of, right? This is Jeremiah, like Rachel weeping for her children, right? And this is, the, this is the passage. She refuses to be comforted because they are no more. Go long, Matthew! And he slaps it right down in, there it is, caught it. I'm going to put it right there. Rachel weeping for her children because they are no more. High five back, you know, hundreds of years ago. Woo, right? That's how I pictured messianic prophecy to work until I started reading Matthew. You see, when we think about the way in which Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, Matthew is showing us right out of the gates as Jesus' early life progresses, every move, every event, every circumstance is bounded by the scriptures. It's what the Old Testament points forward to. Remember in our text today that Reynard just read for us? Jesus said he fulfills not just the law, but the law and the prophets. Yes, Jesus obeyed the law and all it required, but he also fulfilled the prophets. That is, what the prophets predicted and foreshadowed would come in the future. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets because they point to him. He is their ultimate fulfillment. It's like, I've used this illustration before, but it's like when you're walking along the beach and you see footprints in the sand. If you follow those footprints, eventually, if the person has stopped, you can reach the person because you can say, oh, look, it looks like there's someone's footprints here. And then if that person is still on the beach, you can finally re reach that person. The footprints throughout the Old Testament, as it were, is Jesus is there and Matthew says, and here he is. Here he is. Friends, listen, if you have children or if you have grandchildren, we have to show them on a regular basis, why Jesus is the centerpiece of Scripture. We don't just look to say someone like Joseph. You know, the story with Joseph and Potiphar's wife? It's a pretty racy one. You'll get there if you keep reading in our, in, in our reading Scripture time. But we don't just look at the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife and say, okay, boys and girls, when you're faced with temptation... Be like Joseph, because Joseph is a good guy. So be like Joseph. No, 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 what's going on there? What's going on broadly speaking? Well, God is keeping his people alive. He's showing his promises that he made all the way back to Abraham, that he'll have a people for himself. He rescues those people so they don't die of starvation, right? The Messiah comes through that line. Judah is there. There's this focus on Judah. You see, there's a bigger picture there than just be a Joseph, don't be a rat bag, be a Joseph. Or, or, or how about this? Be a Daniel. When you have opposition from people and they're giving you a hard time, even if you have to be thrown in the lion's den, 
Keep your head up. Look to Daniel. God, again, is keeping his promises, showing his faithfulness to this people that even have broken his covenant, that are in a foreign land, and that the Lord is showing his grace and his kindness to Daniel. There's ultimately scripture that Daniel's going to write that's going to point forward to the Son of Man, this Jesus figure. I mean, Israel longs for a king, right? And even their great king, even King David, we know has some serious, serious dirty laundry. Matthew 1 highlights that. He's the wife, right? Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. He hangs out all the dirty linen, shows you who this dude is, which means there's a greater King David, the son of David, the Messiah himself. So we don't look at King David and say, hey, he faced Goliath. What Goliaths are in your life, friends? Is there a, a mammoth of a trial in your life right now? Well, I hope you have your five stones ready to take on Goliath. No, you look at King David, you look and say, wow, look, there was a promise made in Genesis 3.15 that one day the, the seed of the woman will crush, will crush the seed of the snake. And we're seeing even just a picture of that when you have now the seed of the snake, as it were, this Philistine who's coming against the armies of the living God. And that's why David says, who is this bloke who dares defy the armies of the living God? I have king, the true king on my side, and I'll show you, I'll cut this guy's head off, I'll remain triumphant. And even though David has his ups and his downs, we look forward to a greater David who is himself the Lord Jesus Christ who never sinned, and he crushes Satan's head at Calvary. Man, I wish I could take a biblical theology class from Jesus as he's on the road to Emmaus. And in Luke 24, these two guys are like, hey, you know, it's so sad. And Jesus comes alongside them and he goes, hey, why are you so sad? Oh, where have you been, man? You know, don't you know that there's this guy, Jesus, and he was killed? And he goes, opens up the scriptures and shows them all the way from Genesis on, this is why the Son of Man had to come and had to suffer. This is who, it's, I'm talking, it's me, guys. It's the Lord Jesus. Now, I, when I'm encouraging you, friends, we need to teach our children and grandchildren or nieces and nephews that Jesus is the centerpiece of the Bible. A good resource for that, two of them I'll give you, one is, if the kids are three and above, is by David Helm, the Big Picture Story Bible. Big Picture Story Bible, that's a good one. The second one is the Jesus Storybook Bible. The Jesus Storybook Bible. It gives it away in the title. The Jesus Storybook Bible. I'd encourage you, honestly, I've been reading the Jesus Storybook Bible to my kids. Just because it's a kid, I'm encouraged by it. Sally Lloyd-Jones is amazing. I really encourage you, grab that book, even if you're an adult, no shame. So, Paula, do we have that in our library? Yes, no? Not yet, okay. Sometimes I recommend books, and then, and then Paula kindly looks at me and says, we had that in our library, and I'm like, oh, sorry. That would have been, a lot easy, that would have been an easy win. But we don't have the one yet, but you can grab that book. So, if you want to understand Jesus better, study your Old Testament. Did you hear what I said? If you want to understand Jesus better, study your Old Testament. So in this first point, when we're trying to understand, okay, what's the correlation here between Jesus? What's the connection? What's the relation between Jesus and the Old Testament? I suppose 
we could actually reverse that question and ask, no, 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 what is the relationship of the Old Testament to Jesus? It's not the question of Jesus' relation to the law, per se. Rather, it's the Old Testament relation to Jesus. I mean, as the Lord is addressing his disciples on a hillside in Galilee, I want you to picture this, right? You've got crowds there. You've got the disciples. You've got Pharisees. And as he talks about following God, undoubtedly, they would have thought this. Okay, here's this rabbi. He opens up his mouth, and the very thing that spews out is, you've got to obey the Torah. And yet... Here's Jesus launching in and he actually is making the whole thing about himself. Oh, so, so it's all about you, Jesus? You ever hear people say that? Oh, so it's all about you? The whole, the whole universe revolves around you? Well, if you're Jesus, yes. Not only does it revolve around me, I keep it going. But because there's this new era of fulfillment, because this is a reality here, because Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets, it potentially creates a problem. I don't know if you've caught this yet. The problem is that you might ask, well, is then is Jesus setting himself up against God's word from, say, Genesis to Malachi? Sort of claiming that these books are no longer valid? Or would that imply that the Old Testament is no longer valid for us as Christians? What would that mean then? Well, I want to quote R.T. France, who's one of my favorite commentary, commentators. Listen, listen to this. He says, In light of the general sense of fulfill in Matthew, we might then paraphrase Jesus' words as follows. I like the paraphrase of Jesus' words here. Listen to this. Far from wanting to set aside the law and the prophets, it is my role to bring into being that to which they have pointed forward, to carry them into a new era of fulfillment. Okay, listen to how France breaks this down for us. This is helpful. He says, On this understanding, the authority of the law and the prophets is not abolished. They remain the authoritative word of God, but their role will no longer be the same now that what they pointed forward to has come. It will be for Jesus' followers, that's all of us, Jesus' followers to discern in the light of his teaching and practice what is now the right way to apply those texts in the new situation which his coming has created. From now on, it will be the authoritative teaching of Jesus which must govern his disciples' understanding and practical application of the law. Does that make sense a little bit? Yes, no? So, it's not as if Jesus is this radical abolitionist who says, hey, you know what? Hey, I'm here. I'm, I'm canceling all of this out. It's done. Far from it, actually. Look in your Bible. Look again, chapter 5. Go back to 517. Notice what he says. Do you not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, 
not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What is this iota and dot stuff? Some of you, if you grew up with the King James Bible, you might be familiar with the phrase jots and tittles. Jots and tittles. Or maybe you have the NIV in front of you and it says not the least stroke of a pen, right? What does this stuff all mean? Well, in Jewish language, that was really compelling. In iota is a Greek letter, but likely here, Jesus is referring to the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, which is yod, okay? So I know this looks like absolute gibberish, as it probably does. So Aleph, Beit, Gamal, Dalet, He, Wav, Zion, Chet, Tet. See that little thing that looks like an apostrophe up there? That's called a yod. A yod. Okay, here I'll show you another. Go to the next one, Reynard. Right, so that's the yod on the far right right there. A tiny little letter. In fact, one bloke who had way too much time on his hands actually tallied up every occurrence of a yod in the Hebrew Bible. And he came up with 66,420 yods. Now that's a lot of yods and it would take ages to count them. But here's the point. In the most dramatic way in talking about his relationship to the law, Jesus says, not only do I fulfill it, but the law won't pass away, not even the smallest yod, until all is accomplished. Do you see that phrase in your Bible? Until all is accomplished. So here, friends, here comes the $50 question for us. When does that happen? When is all accomplished? When does this fulfillment occur? All right, I'm going to give you a few options for this. There's debate on this. Some say it's immediate. It happens right there, right as Jesus is talking. Others say, no, no, it happens at Jesus' death and resurrection. Finally, others say, no, it's at his second coming. Now, can I ask you, when do you think it occurs? When do you think it happens? Let's go back to your friend sitting having coffee. Well, when does that happen? Is this, is this now? Is this later? Is this in the future? When, when does this happen? Perhaps right there? Perhaps later? Some of you are thinking, you know, Rob? I don't know, man. <laughs> and I don't even want to go down that rabbit hole with you. I have no idea. It's fine. Take a brain break. We'll come pick you up in just a moment. But for the rest of us, that want to go on this tour with me, come down this rabbit hole because there's a prize. Here's your prize. You get two prizes if you come down this rabbit hole. Yeah, it's like the infomercial. And wait, there's more, right? You get two prizes. Prize number one, you get to vote on which one. I'm going to give you three options. I already did. You get to vote on which one. You can actually raise your hand. We're not a Baptist church that votes every month at AGM meetings, right? So you get to vote. We get to vote like once a year or whatever, maybe more. But you get to vote. So you get to vote. You get to vote. That's pretty cool. In Australia, you have to vote, right? So you don't have to vote for this one, but you get to vote. And if you are the winner and you get the right one, Rob Wright is going to buy you a coffee. <laughs> I'm kidding. 
I'm watching the accountant sort of like stress in his eyes, sort of, you know. He's telling it up. Let's see, there, sh- there could be probably about 15 winners, so that would say $2, and he's already been like doing the math. So, all right. We, we have to, though, think about this because I guess all the ones I just laid, immediate, death and resurrection, second coming, on the face of it, they all seem somewhat reasonable, right? So, so it's helpful to think through them, think through what, what seems most you know, convincing. Um, when you consider the first one, this happens immediately at Jesus as he's talking, there's somewhat value to this idea given the fact that he is just about to say, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, right? And then he also says this near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, therefore whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, not like later, but now, because I have the authority now. Whoever hears these words of mine, this is the law of Christ, as it were, happening right here, right now. Another view is that this is all accomplished at Jesus' second coming, when God's glory and salvation and judgment is brought to pass, which, to be fair, you clearly have in time's language of heaven and earth passing away, Right? There's an apocalyptic flavor there, as you were. Okay, so at Jesus' second coming, then and only then will the written revelation of God's will no longer be necessary. Only then, at the end of the age, all Christ's, at Christ's return, will the law pass away. But in this period, right? In this period, between Jesus' first and second coming, the law is fixed and permanent. So that's the second view. Now the third view would say, no, this happens at Jesus' death and resurrection. So again, the language of heaven and earth passing away is cosmic imagery. Cosmic imagery that reflects, that refers to the death of creation and the rebirth of new creation itself, which I wonder, those who hold this view, would actually suggest to us that this occurs at the death and resurrection of Jesus. This event is the turning point in history. This is the epicenter. It's the end of old creation, the beginning of the new creation, with Jesus as the new Adam and true Israel. So, option A, B, and C. Option A, who votes for this happens? You've got to raise your hand. Well, you don't have to raise your hand. But who votes for this happens immediately? Let me show hands. Nobody. Okay. Do you know who Don Carson is? Anybody? He's like, one of, he's like the Pope of Protestantism in my mind. Okay. He holds that view. So it's not, it's not a crazy view. All right. That's right. Any other takers? Yes? No? Okay. Dan? Dan? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I know. I know. Option B. Option B was... Second coming of Christ. Who votes for that? Okay, Dan. Good. At least we got one. So, oh, Joy. Good. Yep. Lynn and Robin. Both of you? Yes? No? (laughs) I'll let you work that out between the two of you. Okay. And option C, death and resurrection. Who votes for that? There's a lot of you that didn't even vote. (laughs) You don't want a free coffee from Rob? That's fine. Okay. Now, I I was... I'm. I was a bit, and I saw Reynard read the third one. Oh, you're stretching. Okay. 
So, yeah. Now, I was a bit cheeky. I was a bit cheeky with you guys because I think I probably lean towards option two and three. Because first, right, when does all this occur? First at Jesus' death and resurrection, and then again, finally, at his second coming. So I, I, I'd like to, I leaned it towards both. Now, okay, for those of you that have been checked out the last 15 minutes, you heard some jokes, and like, oh, what do you say, what do you say? Oh, I missed that part. We're out of the rabbit hole now. So come back, come back, come back, okay? Come back to us, because I'm, Jesus is now going to turn to you, verse 19, with a therefore. Therefore, I'm turning to you now, all of you that claim to follow Jesus, what is your attitude towards the Old Testament then? What is your attitude? Christ in the law, now Christians in the law. Look at verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So you have here that our posture, not only for ourselves, but how we teach others. Have you heard the phrase, more is caught than taught? If you have a dismissive sort of attitude towards the Old Testament, though you may not tell someone, don't worry about the Old Testament, your whole posture communicates that. Does that make sense? So he's saying here, not only is it us, and it's, it's primarily about teaching, by the way, because he's saying whoever teaches those, they'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to try to give you an illustration. All illustrations inevitably break down, but I'll just give you one. Let's suppose that an old house represents the Old Testament, and a new house represents the New Testament and Christ's work. Jesus doesn't demolish the old house, but he keeps it intact. He also builds his new house next to it or even connected to it, sharing the same foundation. As Christians, we live in the new house, which is greater and taller and has new furnishings. But we're encouraged to frequently visit the old house. That is, we may read the Psalms and the Proverbs and the Prophets and so on, but we live in the new house. Now, when Christians go back to the old house, the Old Testament, they are not allowed to break items in the old house, right? They must not pick up an, a, a, an old dish, a command, as it were, smash it on the floor. In fact, it's like when you visit a house, you know, maybe that you're considering buying, and the, if you have little kids with you, and, oh, and they're going to go jump on the couch. No, don't jump on the couch. It's not our house. Don't touch anything. Don't mess with it. It's not our house, right? So don't, don't you know, oh, well, that looks, that looks, you know, don't pull the mother-in-law thing where you say, oh, well, I think your, you know, your dishes should be over there, and you pick them all up, take them upon yourself to just move them all the way to the other side or whatever. Don't do that, Okay? So they must not pick up an old dish, a command, and smash it on the floor, 
nor should Christians teach others to break items in the old house. Rather, they teach their fellow Christians to respect and honor the old house as a whole. When we enter the old house, we look at it through the vision of Jesus and through his fulfillment. He is our authoritative tour guide, so to speak. The Old Testament is still standing without one piece missing or taken from it. All the items and furnishings remain in it, but still, Jesus lifts our eyes to the new house and calls us into it. Every commandment that is contained in the Old Testament can still be read, taught, and practiced for our instruction and blessing, but they must now be read through the lens of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you're like, I don't really get the house thing, I'm just trying to break it down because you see how massive this passage is? And I notice some of you nodding your heads going, okay, I get it. Christians in the law and the teaching. Yep, it's making sense. All right, I don't mean to rain on your parade, but I'm gonna just totally throw one more monkey wrench at you. It's not my fault. Blame Matthew. He, he pinned it, not me. But I'm gonna throw one more monkey wrench at you because what on earth is going on in verse 20? Because right? at first we're like, okay, yeah, the house thing, I get it, I get it. I see the Old Testament through the, I don't mess with it, I don't mess with it. It still has the authority. Jesus is the fulfillment. I got it, tick, tick, tick. yes. But unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, do you hear like a car hitting the brakes or maybe even a scratch record? You know, don't worry about records. You put me like, what's a record? Okay, you're a scratch record, right? Sorry? Come again, Jesus? I mean, this ought to stop us in our tracks. The Pharisees were the good guys of the day. They were very concerned about obeying God's will. They were the conservatives. And not only were they conservative in their doctrine, but they were very pious people. When they went to Aldi or Woolies, they came back with their dill and mint, and they immediately took 10% off the top without question, and they gave it to the temple. They fasted at least twice a week. They were involved in long prayers, They observed all the Jewish holidays. They dedicated themselves to the Sabbath. They were extremely pious, very committed to God, as it were. So what in the world is Jesus saying when he says, your righteousness, which on his original hearer's ears and ours, your righteousness sounds like right living. Your righteousness needs to go beyond those guys. Be like someone today saying, unless you are a better person than Mother Teresa or Billy Graham, just scratch the idea of going to heaven. Oh, talk about deflating. No wonder your friend at the coffee house's cafe is deflated, right? What is Jesus saying? And don't forget, here in Galilee, who is he addressing? He's dressing his disciples. This, remember, this is the discourse on discipleship. People that live in the kingdom. Still with me? Yes, yes? But, but who are the people gathered around? You know, they don't have, I know in the medieval ages, and, you know, the enlightenment, they have halos on their heads. Okay, but they don't have halos on their heads. Okay, these are fishermen. These are prostitutes. 
These are tax collectors, like Matthew's a tax collector. These are the type of people, and Jesus says, you know the guys that are just pros, that just have it down pat on their external righteousness? You know those guys, the Pharisees? And then you can see all these fishermen and prostitutes. Your righteousness has to go way beyond their righteousness. This seems a bit silly, if you think about it. I mean, who's going to beat a Pharisee at his own game, as it were? Especially when he's invented the rules on some of these things. Nobody! That's ridiculous. That's insane. So herein lies the key. God sees and cares about our hearts. We need a righteousness that is not merely external, but internal. The problem with the Pharisees is, yes, they do have an external righteousness, but as Jesus says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Sure, they honor me with their lips, with their fasting, with their money, with their prayer meetings, but their heart is far from me. Remember I told you 30 minutes ago that how we understand this section bleeds into how we read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount? Arguably, this verse is the key ingredient to reading what follows. Because in verse 20, is unpacked in the rest of the sermon. Following this verse, Jesus offers six examples of righteousness which are internal versus external. So, for today, we're stopping at verse 20. But right after verse 20, track with me here, your righteousness must, succeed, uh, must go far beyond the scribes and the Pharisees, right? Okay, what does that mean? Here are six examples, and they're right there in the rest of the chapter, of what it means, what this internal righteousness means, because Jesus cites the sixth commandment, right? He prohibits murder. That's, that's what we see in the next passage. But then he tightens it up by going straight for our hearts. If anyone has anger in his heart towards a brother, then he will be judged. Jesus refers to the seventh commandment, which prohibits adultery. That's the next section, right? You can, it comes right there. But then he tightens that up with the problem of the heart. If anyone entertains lust. He has already committed adultery in his what? Heart. In each of these six examples, Jesus deepens the outward act where the stereotypical Pharisee and teacher of the law lived, right? That was the realm. That was their deal. That was their righteousness. Into the heart and mind. This is this theme that unifies all of this. This is how the righteousness of the citizens of the kingdom must surpass or excel that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then in the next chapter, what does he do? Now we've got six examples, okay? And then in the next chapter, you see the outworking of this still internally with three examples. You see it, prayer giving to the poor, and fasting. And every time, it's about the heart, right? And when you pray, 
don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray standing on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you, you know what they've got? They're already rewarded. And what was that? That's it. And, and don't, and we know when you give to the needy, don't do, 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 announce it with, I'm going to give to the needy. Well, they've received their reward in full. And when you pray, go into your room, close the door. And when you fast, don't look like you just rolled out of bed and showing everyone that you fasted. Oh, yeah, I'm fasting. Because it's about your heart. It's about internal. Then he wraps up all of that, going back to the six examples now. And he says, you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What's that about? Keep coming, and we'll get there. But I'll give you a sneak peek, and then we're closing. Sneak peek is, it's the word teleos. Teleos means the end of. The end of who you are needs to be someone that is internally righteous because of Jesus' work for you. So you're sitting there talking with the friend. I can't obey any of these Old Testament laws. I can't do this. Look, Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. But as his follower, if you're going to be in the citizen as a kingdom of God, it's a much greater righteousness than just putting on a show. Coming and putting your hands in the air and singing. It's not any of those things that are bad, but it's about the heart. It's about what you really, at the end of the day, the, the true you, when only God himself knows and only God himself is watching, it's the internal righteousness. That is what far surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. That's how you counsel your friend. Let's pray. Lord, what a massive passage that was, and I pray that if there's any way that I botched it, that you would forgive me. Lord, we do pray that whatever was true and right would, be, would ring in our hearts and our ears. Help us, Lord, to be the people that have an internal type of righteousness. At the end of the day, Lord, we are trusting in you because of your, who you are, person, your work on our behalf and help us to be kingdom citizens who, who live differently from the heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.